welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deep values of the people who shape our common life. I'm driven by a deep curiosity about what is beneath the surface of these public figures. How do they make meaning? How do they make decisions? What is the thread that they're following where they're trying to use their skills and talents professionally? What do they believe about themselves? What do they believe about other people and about what a good life is, even what might be beyond this life? And I speak to people from all different political and metaphysical and professional perspectives. So if you're looking for a podcast where you'll only hear people that you already like and respect or or who are uh, really a bit like you, then this is not the place for you. I would invite you to maybe, of course, start if you're a new lister with the people that you already feel interested to talk to, people whose names you might recognize or whose identities you have something in common with. But I hope over time you will also listen to people from different perspectives, different life experiences, different values. Because I believe, and I'm on a kind of more soapboxy manifesto mood today, I believe that this listening across differences, this seeking to understand this curiosity about people not like ourselves is a really important practice. For me, it's a spiritual practice. If that language doesn't work for you, then you can call it a citizenship practice. You could just think of it as a human practice of something that is good for us. And I think like most things that are actually good for us, they also can be beautiful and joyful and enjoyable. This podcast is not homework. It should feel like an adventure. And today's adventure is in the company of Catherine May. Catherine May is a writer. She has written... um, several published books, beginning with novels and then moving into nonfiction and memoir. And she is perhaps best known for her internationally best-selling book, Wintering, which is about, uh, yes, the season of winter, but also the seasons in our lives of rest and retreat, of difficulty and struggle, of stripping back. And it was published during the 2020 pandemic and struck a chord with a lot of people. And her most recent book is called Enchantment, about finding awe and wonder in the everyday, and that's about to come out in paperback. We spoke about both those themes, but also about solitude and class and uh, what it means for her to be an artistic person and the weirdness of the millions of people that now look to her for wisdom and the strangeness of all these people uh, on YouTube and who've written books who perhaps, you know, in other decades or other centuries, uh, religious leaders would have been um, where people went for wisdom. And now in some cases, it's people like Catherine. What do you do with that? How do you live it? Well, we had a lovely, lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to hand it over to you, but there are some reflections from me at the end. So check back in afterwards. Catherine, we are going to do that very un-British thing, which is no small talk, although we have already talked about the weather because it's obligatory. Um, and go We, we did, we went far. through that phase. Yeah, yeah. Even me, who's, who can't do small talk and is unapologetically <laughs> earnest and always wants to do depth. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, you know, it's, it's a reflex. I can't help it. Uh, we're going to move past the fact that it's grey today. And I would love to um, give you a moment to reflect on what is sacred to you. And guests can take that in any direction that they want. You can challenge the premise. You can, you know, push back. But if it's helpful to have some guardrails, I started this project trying to understand what people's deep values and principles are that they are trying to live by. Often failing to live by, but trying to live by. 
And we sometimes get a clue to what is sacred to us um, when it's transgressed or when we feel like we're being pushed to compromise on something. That kind of like ick reaction mm. is often a clue to what's sacred to us. Um, but I just find it a generative thing to ponder on rather than something that we're going to have a definitive or, you know, um, nice clean answer to you. So as someone who is very uh, thoughtful about words and things in this area, what bubbles up when I say, what's sacred to you? Well, it's a lovely question. And I think the the first thing that popped into my mind was the word solitude, um, which is such an important component of my life, but one that so often is very hard to access or achieve. Um, and And one that it sometimes feels challenging to demand, actually, um, that it almost feels transgressive to say, I need loads of solitude in order to function. But what I really realised in the last couple of years, you know, because I always had these concerns that my desire for solitude was very selfish and very kind of about getting me time um, and, and rejecting everybody else. But actually, in my moments of solitude, that's almost how I increase my connections with the world around me. I'm, I'm contemplating all my points of contact over the last few days, all my relationships, all the important people to me. And I feel like I'm strengthening those bonds while I'm alone rather than rejecting them. Hmm. And I come back a better person, like more able to to be a a positive social presence rather than someone that that's desperate to escape so yeah i think mm. solitude is is so sacred to me it's it's a it's a way of communing with something far bigger than i am which is you know one of the ways that we can think about the sacred maybe yeah no, that's beautiful it's funny my brain went to um i really resist computer or machine metaphors for human beings but my, my, my I went immediately to like defragging your hard drive or something something that you know processing the inputs or something and I was like no, no, no I don't love that and then that I, what I was seeing is something around what happens when we dream you know we have all these inputs mm. during the day and then mm. our conscious and unconscious kind of sorts and yeah. orders and reconnects and that's such a vital part of then going back yeah. into the day and it feels like say the solitude's maybe playing that kind of role for you yeah, certainly. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to return your computery metaphor, um, which is this, the, with a phrase that my husband taught me a few years ago, which is, you know, when you, when your computer goes slow, maybe this is a bit dated now, maybe they don't do this so much anymore, so but your computer starts to run slow. And so rather than backing off, you press every single button on it all at once until it goes beep. And we've, we've all done that. Or is that just me being hideously impatient? <laughs> And and when it beeps, that is that what that beep specifically means is that the computer's events buffer is full. It has this thing called an events buffer, which is that it can and, it, and that means that it can only take in a certain number of events of, of inputs mm. before it starts going, no more beep. Mm. My events buffer gets full. Mm. And solitude lets me gradually work my way through all the things lined up in that buffer till I stop mm. beeping. <laughs> It'd be so helpful if we could just weave that into normal social discourse, right? Like beep. And it was like, oh yeah, no, okay, fine. We know what yeah, that means. All right, sorry, we'll back off. Yeah, God, wouldn't that be brilliant? I do actually do it at home because it is something that we've we've brought up a few times. So I now like beep. And I was like, yeah, all right, sorry. Everyone's talking to me at once. <laughs> Such a helpful shorthand. Mm. 
<laughs> and have there been times in your life where that kind of that sacred core, that that solitude as at the center of something, you've had to make hard decisions in order to honor, or maybe you've made hard mm. decisions and haven't honored them, and that was re- equally significant in your life story. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, in in early motherhood, you know, I I lost my my solitude, and uh, the book that I wrote, uh, The Electricity of Every Living Thing, was about this kind of moment when I realized I needed to take a series of really long walks and I (laughs) I didn't I couldn't even articulate why I wanted to do that at the time I really didn't have anything other than like I need to I need to walk I just need to walk um and I and that that time was it was actually once I started walking it was so hard physically and mentally to do it. Like I only really got going in the autumn. And so I spent a lot of time. I went back to the Southwest Coast path once a month um, to, to try and make progress along the path. And I was walking through the most foul weather you can imagine. I was like hailed on. I was constantly rained on. There was so much mud. I fell over so many times <laughs> And I was really, I was really unfit actually as well. I I found it physically very, very difficult to do. And I walked with a lot of guilt as well for leaving my three-year-old with my husband while I did it and for not wanting to be there all the time and for not wanting to be the ever-present mother. And yeah, I knew I just, I just needed it. I knew I was going to break without it. And I, and yeah, if, if to, to stretch an events buffer metaphor far too far, it took me six months of walking to, to empty that buffer and to, mm-hmm. to actually get some clarity again about what was happening in my life. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was, yeah, it was really the moment that I learned how much I need to not only be alone, but to move while mm-hmm. I'm being alone, not to, not to be alone sitting still, but that actually the the physical movement really is part of that in a, in a very meditative way, mm. in a way that lets me keep going, that lets me keep being alone. And that, I, I mean, the way I always say it is like, I need to get my legs tired to release my brain, to, to think about something other than the path. Mm. I need to kind of reach this state of exhaustion before I get into a very particular state of mind that feels like I'm beginning to really connect with the the things that are in there. So yeah. So sounds almost like a kind of pilgrimage to yourself or pilgrimage to your inner world underneath the noise. Yeah. I'm really it's interesting, isn't it? I think this idea of pilgrimage is really rising up in our culture at the moment. I think we're really reconnecting with what it means to move through a landscape with a with a kind of spiritual purpose mm-hmm. um and that you know maybe we've overused the word journey too much in storytelling <laughs> but the journeys we take are re- are meaningful and mm. they're meaningful not because of meaning we give them before we start the journey, but we but we will always find something in the progress of that walk, even if it's boredom, even if it's through sheer boredom that we'll 
do yeah. something else like that. I think I think boredom's a really important part of pilgrimage, actually. Yes. Um, but yeah, I I wonder if there's like a a cycle that we should all honour of of pilgrimage every. I, I'm going to say like seven years or so feels about right to me. Yeah. Everyone should get their little pilgrimage. Yeah. There's so much I want to come back to in what you said, but first I want have a tradition of trying to take the listener um, back to the early years of, of our guest to kind of locate you in the beginning of your story. And I particularly mm. love to hear any big ideas that were in the air, probably implicitly rather than explicitly, although that's not true for everyone's childhood. Um, yeah. Philosophical, political, religious, other, that formed mm. the young Catherine. What was your world like? I actually think it was probably an absence of all of those things in, in lots of ways. Um, I grew up in a a kind of, I mean, my mother's a, a devout atheist, um, but not in a particularly philosophical way, just that she just doesn't, doesn't like any of it, she'd say. Mm. Um, and I always went to Christian schools, funnily enough. And so I, I had a lot of contact with religion, but from from a household that that definitely wasn't part of it. Um, I I just don't come from a very intellectual background at all, actually. Um, and I think what was formative for me was feeling like I wanted to think about a lot of different things, like quite conceptually. I was really interested in ideas and debates around, you know, big questions that, you know, about mm. the meaning of life. Um, and that I felt there was no one in my life that I could share that with. And I felt quite odd for, for wanting those things. Mm. Um, and one of like one of my very earliest memories is going to visit a friend of my mum's and being told that she had a little boy the same age as me. I think I must've been kind of three. And I remember having the thought, maybe they're going to tell me where the sun goes at the end of the day. <laughs> And I, I look back at that and I, I remember this trip seeming really magical to me because I thought they were going to, I decided they were going to tell me. And of, of course, funny enough, they didn't. Mm. Um, and I think my mother could have told me if I'd have asked her. <laughs> mm. But I I remember wanting so much from the, the world, you know, wanting all of this fascinating stuff to come to me. I, I often wonder what life would have been like for me with the internet now, like the endless possibility it just would have... I think we forget what a magical space the internet is as well as a really difficult and oppressive space that the sheer possibility of finding out whatever you wanted to know yeah. that exists now that just did not exist at the time. Yeah. This may not be a frame that kind of sits right or is helpful, in which case feel free to kind of bat it back. But one of the things I often talk about with guests is is, is divides and, and differences and how we can build empathy mm. and curiosity across them. And I think certainly in recent years, we've spoken about lots of those differences and 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 coming to understand each other more de deeply. But that of of that list of possible ways we can conceive of ourselves, class is one of the ones that's that's quieter. Mm, or mm. given how weirdly baked it in to the British <laughs> psyche it is, yeah, yeah, not spoken about. Have you kind of do, do, do you, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I. I see a lot of things through the lens of class uh, because it, uh, you know, I'm I'm extremely aware of it in in the the path my life has taken, uh, which is you know coming from a a working class background, being like the first generation of my family to go to university, 
and even entering the workplace and not not understanding the shape of things you know as a graduate still not really understanding how my life was now supposed to work now that I'd crossed this threshold that that the rest of my family hadn't and we we still feel so awkward talking about class it's it's really you know and, and of course it comes with talking about money as well which we absolutely <laughs> hate talking about being British but I I would love to have more of a conversation about that partly to kind of assert some of the amazing values that I grew up with that I don't see existing quite so much in the middle class families that I now know you know the the absolute commitment to looking after all of the people in your family however they're doing at the time and to looking after the people around you to never cutting yourself off for that from for you know really taking responsibility for other people's children and and other people's elderly parents as well, which is really quite common where I come from. Mm. I think they're really amazing values that we could, that a lot of people could learn from working class people on without a doubt. But I'm also, of course, really deeply interested in how kids like me, who are kind of natural questers and who look very odd within those communities and who can't can't not look odd within those communities. What can we do to help them to have the kind of rich cultural experience that middle-class kids just get as standard? Mm. And I still feel like I'm playing catch up with such a lot of things, you know? (laughs) And I, like, there was no access to so many things in my background we could not have afforded to go to the theater we could not have afforded to buy books you know all of these uh, these experiences that are part of the makeup of educated people actually are are things that just would not have been possible in my world and having watched the way that arts are funded over the last 20, 30 years, we are drawing back from a position where we're inviting kids into those spaces rather than really helping them to, to have that. So, yeah, I, it's, a, I, it's a conversation that urgently needs to happen. And that that is actually it's actually it's it's safe it's okay we can yeah. we can have different backgrounds and and, br- and everyone can bring stuff to the table it doesn't have to be a top down conversation yeah I think again and again this feeling that any of these any of these ways in which we're different and we fear getting it wrong or being judged or being exposed it raises our fight mm. or flight right and then we can get tense and clenched yeah. and then we can't actually meet each other across our differences <laughs> with grace and curiosity because we're like mm. armed up and it's mm. awkward but sort of yeah. it's just the practice of being like tell me about your world tell me about your story and yeah as a as just a sort of practice <laughs> of being a citizen right of being in a common life of being mm. people who 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 do have a common life and cannot you know um, yeah yeah Withdraw from it. But I think, you know, in lots of ways, we lack the kind of social structures that would once thrown us all together into one big bucket. And I think, funny enough, church is definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, I had a, I I really, this came to mind for me a couple of years ago when I was working with a colleague who would have self-defined as posh, right? Like proper 
signet mm. ring. I sort of love that family. as a, like, I'm owning the label. <laughs> yeah. She, she not pretending. Was, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very, very posh, like very, very privileged background. Um, and I noticed one day that she was absolutely best friends with one of the women that cleaned the university. And it, it was so incongruous. I was like, how do you two know each other? She was like, well, we go to church together. And mm-hmm. and we know each other really well because of that. And there was obviously a real closeness between them. Yeah. And I, that was a that was a real moment of pause for me of thinking, wow, we are we are really missing out on social situations where you have to accept everyone. You can't yeah. socially exclude people because you don't like them very much, or yeah. they're a bit annoying, or they don't look much like you. Yeah. And that's a skill set we've really, we've really lost. And we're, we're far, I think that's part of the pain that we're, we're feeling right now that we, we've had, we've grown spikes. Yeah. <laughs> we need the edges knocked off us for, you know, to give you a very working yeah. class phrase that we yeah, yeah, yeah. would use about each other all the time. Like if anyone got above themselves, just say they need the edges lock, knocked off them. Um, yeah. I think we've all got a few edges that we, we could do with sanding down a bit at the moment. Yeah, my granddad used to say that about me. Um, <laughs> I, I've personally been told many times that I need the edges knocked off me. Let's just be clear. Like that is a phrase yeah, that I'm yeah, very yeah. familiar and with. And getting, getting a bit big for your boots. That's what yep. I used to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not allowed that um, one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm getting off track. But the I've been writing about this this week about congregations and community and both the pain mm. of them mm, mm. and the very intense discomfort of them. And I think a yeah. lot of congregations are feeling that particularly at the moment in the UK but also the the way there's very few other settings where you have both the scaffolding for community right Mm. you have the structure no one's got to diarize you know who's going to be there you know what's going to happen there's a rhythm right there's something that you can join rather than you having to constantly decide and constantly self-create so that the sort of scaffolding for community and the why which is even when it's hard and it's horrible in the case of my tradition like we are mm. one body and we're called to love one another. Like, get yeah. over yourself. You can't, there's a very yeah. specific set of verses it's pretty about... Com- pretty compelling, isn't it? It's really... Yeah. yeah. Like, you are an eye. You, I know you think the mm. foot's smelly, but you're not going anywhere without it. So, like, these yeah. are... The, the, you are one body. Would you just, like, yeah. Yeah, stop yeah. trying to be one eye walking around in the world? <laughs> and how... Or maybe I'll, like skip ahead but I, w- I wanted to no, talk no, to you about ahead. it's really interesting I'm pouring tea while I'm listening as well I hope great great great, great. well okay and we're gonna put a really big horrifying. pin in that because one of the things I want to talk to you about is uh <laughs> the role of spirituality in your work I would call mm. myself spiritual and religious but I think there's loads of oh, interesting, interesting things going on in the atmosphere Ooh. at the moment but first mm. I just want to just fill in a few bits of your journey so you that we hear we've heard about your childhood and um barriers really to to accessing culture that might have been easier for other kids yeah. What what was the thread you were able to pull on to follow that love of words and books and mm. curiosity in order to, to get to be a writer? How did how, how did that happen? Yeah. I was I was always a writer more than a reader, which is kind of a, unusual actually. When I talk to other writers, they always say like I was a bookworm. Mm. Um, I read sure, but I, I I didn't have a plethora of books available. And what I did have though was the dictionary that. Uh, had been given to me when I was born um, by my aunt. And I read that over and over again, back to front, sideways, around and around. <laughs> um, it was it was this book that 
I found endless fascination in. Like there was, it was bottomless as far as I, I was concerned, because once you learned all the words, you could start comparing the meaning of the words and looking at their etymology and thinking about the languages that they were linked to. And I just, I found that so exciting, which I realise a lot of people won't relate to. Um, I still have got that dictionary, you know, and the covers flapping off of it. And I love how thin the pages are. But I, you know, my mum was very canny in sending me to really great schools. So I went to a, a tiny country primary school and then to a grammar school, because in Kent we still have the the uh, 11 plus system, um, somewhat controversially. I am very uncomfortable with a lot of aspects of it, but I I have to say hand on heart that I was so lucky to be at the school that I ended up in because it pushed me so hard all of the time to keep expanding my understanding of the world. And it's like one of my, I've worked in education for most of my career and, and one of my criticisms of the way that education's changing and has changed since I was at school is that I don't think we're pushing kids to go deeper anymore. I think we're pushing kids to go along the surface and work harder mm-hmm. without understanding why they're working harder and without developing really complex ways of thinking you know they're collecting exams like trinkets and I I think that's tragic and I think kids are cracking under the strain of it I felt like my grammar school pushed me hard but it was nothing like that but what there always was was someone to to challenge every assumption and to say have you read this and maybe you could have a look at that you know and I of course a few particular teachers bring to mind but that I was so lucky to have that and you know it, it allowed me to to get into a good university and and all of that kind of thing so yeah those were good but I also I had a gran who read a lot um she didn't read anything very fancy mm. and in fact she you know there were kind of carrier bags of romance novels that got passed between all the older ladies in the village you know and they didn't read, they weren't fussy they'd just read anything <laughs> yeah. yeah um but I think seeing someone sit down and read every day was like set a little pattern in my mind of what a nice afternoon might look like. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I was was really lucky to have that. Yeah. And when did you think, I am or I could be a writer, this could be my thing? I thought it when I was really young, actually. Um, I think I was probably about 10 when I started being really serious about writing poems. Mm. And had this amazing primary school teacher who had was previously a secondary English teacher. And so she really worked with me on my writing. And she was a great model as well because she wrote the school play every year. So it was like watching another writer in action all the time. <laughs> and she she just took me seriously. And I, yeah, that's, that's all you need, isn't it? You need someone to tell you you're not stupid. Yeah. And I remember her... Um, a, a school open day one day she stood and she put her hand her son was there her son had come to see the school she put her hand on my shoulder and said this is Catherine she's going to Oxbridge I had absolutely no <gasps> idea what Oxbridge was but you're damn right I, I was gonna do it but you know after she'd yeah. said it and it's you know you just need someone that really 
invests in you in that way. It's t- it's a tiny amount of investment, but it's like, I see mm. you, you're good. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to point you the right way. Um, and so that, I just started telling everyone as a writer. And, <laughs> and as I write in Enchantment, it was cute at first, but by the time you're 14, it becomes a lot less cute and people think you're crazy and a bit weird. <laughs> and I, there was a point in my teens when I, decided to stop writing because I became, I suddenly had this horrible sense that I was embarrassing myself and that it was actually not a a worthy ambition, that it was a silly ambition and that I was overshooting. And I I gave up, completely gave up until my mid-twenties. But I... I think I still thought I was a writer the whole time secretly, if I'm honest. <laughs> like, I'm not not sure if I ever quite let go of it. But um, but to all intents and purposes, you know, like I literally threw out all of my notebooks, my poems. Um, I found out a couple of years ago that my mum saved them in the loft. So it wasn't as, as complete as I thought it was. But um, yeah, I, I quit. I quit writing and told, and if anyone asked, I was like, no, no, I'm not a writer anymore. I don't want to be a writer. I decided at that point I wanted to be prime minister, though. (laughs) That would be a whole different conversation, and I sort of love it for you (laughs) and for the rest of us. And that'd be a different world. Um, And what 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 brought you back? (laughs) What from prime minister? I realised prime minister looked really like a horrible job. Actually, I think it's yeah, I think it is. Um, (laughs) I do you know what? I left university and hadn't really loved it there. And started my first job. And as I was sitting on the train, commuting, thinking, God, I hate this. I hate working for other people is the truth that I've learned. (laughs) I couldn't stop wanting to write about it. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking about this story I'd tell about, about commuting and like the people doing it and what it was doing to them. And kept telling myself like, no, no, no. And eventually I left that job and became a school teacher and I did the on-the-job qualification that you could do, which was mm. really hard. Um, and as I was finishing that qualification, my assessor sort of told me I'd passed, the congratulations, and then said, what are you going to do next? And I was like, I'm going to go to the pub and I'm going <laughs> to drink like clear spirits for about five hours and then fall over. And he was like, no, 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 no. Not tonight. Um, <laughs> well, not tonight, but... You, he said, you've been in the habit of learning for about 20 years solid now. And you shouldn't give up. You're, you, you have that pattern that you're following that you know how to study. If you stop now, you're going to break that and you won't go hmm. back to it. So you now have to find the next thing to, to study after this qualification. And wow. I thought about it and I decided to do a, a writing correspondence course. Wow, so, what a fabulous, yeah. pathetic, <laughs> pastoral yeah. thing to speak yeah. over you. Yeah, and I, it it was just one of those, one of those gifts again, that it didn't, it wasn't a huge gift, but it was just, it saw what I was and what I'd always done mm. and said, like, this, this is the next step. Here's a, here's a way marker. This is what mm. you do next. Mm. That's all we need, isn't it? It's so tiny, so, yeah. so tiny. Mm. And then you published some novels and... Uh, My first novel was about a commuter. Brilliant. 
brilliant. <laughs> and latterly nonfiction and these beautiful hybrid sort of memoir, wisdom, mm. reflective, like pleasingly ungenerable um, <laughs> yeah. books. And I wanted to ask, this is a really hard question. Maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe mm. it won't be hard for you, but I'm always interested in how people think of their vocation. You know, mm. when, when you, I guess the short form is, what are you trying to do when you write? What is... <laughs> God, that's such a hard question. <laughs> how um, do you conceive of the way you use your work? Like how are you, mm. where, where are you trying to point yourself towards? So it's actually, it's a hard question, but it's a hard question that I've thought about a lot. And I have a quite a quixotic vision of that because in some ways I see it as this kind of slightly embarrassing compulsion that I just can't stop doing and that there's still that sort of sense of teenage embarrassment left over that you know who who do I think I am to to be trying to achieve this and why on earth would anyone listen to me and and it's you know there's a big part of me that says this is not a proper job you know, this is, this does not count as gainful employment. It's still a hobby that got out of hand. Um, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm completely honest, at the same time, I've always had this sense of sort of mission behind wanting to write and wanting to talk about things that I don't feel are, are spoken about enough, wanting to open up essentially a space in which I can consider the questions that I don't know the answers to. Like I've, I've got no interest in handing down stuff I already know. That would just feel really boring to me. Um, I write books when I want to think something through mm. and to kind of almost, I, th I can't remember what writer it is that said I write to reveal what I already think. I think it might be Joan Didion, but a lot of things are attributed to Joan Didion. So I'm wary of that one. <laughs> Um, but I, that's certainly true for me. Like I, I write to find out what I, what I think and feel about things. Um, and I, I think latterly I've been coming to terms with the meaning that my books have had for people. And I like, I've really struggled with that. I, I won't lie. Mm. <laughs> um, I found that confounding. Mm. After after writing for a long time with no one really caring, mm. um, to first of all, electricity of every living thing, talking about autism and the response, even though that wasn't a very big book, the response that that's occasioned in a, in a small number of people and, and how much that's meant to them. And then wintering, which has sort of done that on a mass scale. Mm. It just took off, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it took off during a, you know, during the a lockdown when I never saw a copy of it in a shop for two years. Wow. And never got to meet an actual reader in person for the longest time. You know, it, it was, it felt completely unworldly and not real, just not real, just straightforwardly mm. not real. And, and in lots of ways, it was comfortable for that to be not real. Like that, that was, yeah. that made it okay. It made it less weird. Yeah. Um, but I, I've been working on this really hard all the last year, actually, to stop pushing back against people saying, 
this stuff matters to me. This mm. is this has meant something to me. And I they don't need me being graceless about going, oh no, I'm sure it doesn't. Don't worry about it. They yeah. actually need me to receive that in a more gracious way. And so I'm trying to pull up my big girl pants on that and uh and actually mm. learn to receive that better and learn to to step into the role that that's being offered to me here as uncomfortable as it is but maybe maybe actually that's the right you need people to be uncomfortable in that role yeah <laughs> they maybe they're like yeah maybe that's a responsibility as a, a deeply uncomfortable person to, to yes do that. someone who hungers for that role will probably yeah. end up a out of control guru rather than someone who's able to offer something genuinely <sighs> human so, and wise yeah I'm so wary of gurus. I, they're everywhere. Mm. They're just everywhere, and it's not. It's not just like the sheer number of them that turn out to be abusers, which you know it, it does seem to be a shockingly high hit rate. Mm. It's also this idea that we can straightforwardly tell people how to get life right, and that that will alleviate all of their suffering and lift this terrible burden of the act of living from them just give them mm. the set of right answers like the cheat sheet and and off you go and everything will be fine mm. I find that such an offensive lie I I think yeah. if nothing else like I'm motivated by keep going into the forum to say we don't know we don't know mm. that's not the point of any of this and anyone yeah. that tells you that they do know is not telling you the truth. They're just making money from you. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you about, about honesty because, mm. you know, you made this move from writing novels to writing at least in part about your own life, which I think always feels, or yeah. not for everyone, but seems risk and exposure seems baked in <laughs> to that decision. Yeah. And my guess about one of the reasons that your books have connected with so many people is you're just incredibly honest. You're very honest mm. about feeling embarrassed about wanting to talk about spirituality, but also <laughs> wanting to talk about yeah. spirituality, but also yeah. wanting not to be not taken seriously because you're not irrational. You're just interested <laughs> in these things. But what even is rationality? <laughs> just adore it. Yeah. And just the, the very, the things that are very, that get overlooked <laughs> as banal, right? The being mm. on long-term chronic sick leave and then feeling so awkward and not wanting to be judged and feeling guilty for not being at work but also not being able to be at work like I'm not sure yeah. anyone who's had any kind of like more than a few days off sick has experienced that <laughs> feeling that I have yeah. never seen it written yeah. about anywhere how as you write how do you go about do you have a kind of philosophy of how honest is, is there a too honest have you got more honest how do you think about that mm. particular value in your work I mean, it's a balance, and but as I'm as I'm writing, I'm I'm waiting for like the kind of gut feeling that I've made contact with the thing I'm writing about, and so quite <laughs> often I'll do multiple drafts where I get closer and closer and closer to the thing, you know, to that to not not the not the truth is in the facts because I'm not sure that that's all that relevant. The the kind of emotional truth of it, the core of it, the 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 sort of the, the part of it that transcends the circumstances of what happened. Because I actually, I think that's a red herring in lots of ways. Um, and so I'll often get closer and closer until I really feel it. But I also deliberately hold back 
some of the details, like some of them, some of them have to be mine, you know, and, mm. and I, I do think that people don't understand the level of craft involved in writing memoir. They, they value it for the truths it tells, but they, they, if, if you've written it well, what they, they don't see all the stuff you're putting behind a curtain to keep yourself or the, and, and, and very importantly, the people you're writing about safe. Mm. Um, so I love that people think I'm being straightforwardly honest. <laughs> I'm often being very careful with the facts, but very open with the emotional truths. Um, and I, for me, that's that's kind of an ethical uh, sort of you know principle in lots of mm. ways. But also, it just helps me to feel like I've got something that I'm keeping that 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 not everybody does know everything about me but they think they do. And mm. I, and I think that's the, the way it needs to play out because I, I actually, as, as memoirs growing as a genre, I worry an awful lot about particularly younger people writing these very, very frank memoirs that, <sighs> yeah, that, that, ha that will have impacts on their lives that they won't understand right now. Mm. Yeah. And I, I do feel very protective about how we're treating this this wonderful trade in honesty and very mm. fresh honesty about parts of life that we didn't used to talk about. Yeah. But I I would love to see publishing as a whole reflecting quite carefully on the risks that are inherent in that and how we can protect people from uh, the rest of the world when when you've been quite so exposed. Because mm, yeah. it's, it's not just writing a book now, is it? It's, you know, everyone's online and they can find you yeah. and they can contact you and and feel yeah. a sense of ownership that they are not entitled to. Yeah. And I and at the same time, like, I think um, there's a discourse that says um, you must reply to every person who contacts you. You know, you yeah. must read every comment, even if they're really toxic. Mm. You must make a response. You you must witness what the whole world thinks of you. And I I don't think there's ever been a, a circumstance like that before. No. And I, like, I'm actually quite, I'm increasingly upfront because I think it's really important to kind of figure out a way through this for people that are coming up behind. And, and I mm. sort of say, I don't answer fan mail. Mm. And the reason I don't is because I can't, cope and I can't be expected to cope with that level of human pain in my inbox every day mm. like I I am not the right person to 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 pour this out to it's not fair on me and I can't help you yeah and actually in many ways I need to not I need you to know that I'm not going to see it because I'm not the answer unfortunately and I and I'm so sorry that the world is so unsupportive and it's so hard to access support but I've tried being everyone's support network for a very short amount of time and I realised very quickly that it's not okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, this is particular to female writers, I think. I don't think men get this stuff in, in quite the same way. Mm. Um, and it's particular to writers in minority groups as well. Mm. Um, and I, we are like, we're the pit canaries of a, a huge failure of, of the mental health system in our society and of the social care system and of and of community and care just breaking down. Mm. But I'm I think I feel 
increasingly a responsibility to show people the stuff I'm not doing and that I can't do and that I can't be expected yeah. to do. It's really yeah, tough. that clarity is real kindness, I think. Oh, I, I'm sort of groping towards a question that I can't quite crystallise, but it is about that role that writers like you are being asked to play and how it does relate to the changing religious mm. and spiritual landscape because if yes. reading your books, which are so beautiful and so honest... And do play with these, what I would, you know, from my mm. tradition to use theological themes about surrender yeah. and the kind of, yeah. sto- you know, story of life. I feel like one of the things I value about my tradition is being immersed in the church calendar, which takes you through seasons of fasting yeah, and feasting, definitely. right? And, yeah. and attention and enchantment and wonder. And I feel like those, you know, centuries old wisdoms about what humans need and how we work mm. used to be passed down very imperfectly and sometimes yeah. abusively, but generally well sure. by yeah. religious communities. And so few people feel able to access those now. So mm. you get, you. I, th- I think of Oliver Berkman as another person in this space, you know, yeah. really trying to dig deep into serious philosophy and wisdom. And both of you getting called self-help in this way that <laughs> is not, it, it, because that word is like disparaged. In the moment, both of us go, <laughs> Yeah, because you're not going, here's your 10-point life plan. Um, no. <laughs> but yeah, how, because a couple of times reading your work, I was like, well, this is almost priestly. This is like, particularly around attention. Mm. Like, I think of a really good priest being like, come and see, come and see. Like, I will walk with you and we will do this together. Yeah. Come and see. But as you say, you can't you, you can't do pastoral care for a flock of readers or followers on Instagram. <laughs> for like 500,000 people, which is how it, I sometimes feel every one of those 500, you know, um, yeah. a soul's calling, like it's, it's, it's physical almost. Um, yes, I agree with everything you're saying. And I, and I agree that I don't think authors are the only group, but I think they're a significant group that are absorbing a kind of fallout from organized religion from you know but also from like family wisdom being like intergenerational Mm. wisdom not being passed down in in a way that perhaps it would have done or us not being as willing to listen to the (laughs) the very hard truths that get handed down in an intergenerational way yeah um yes I'm I'm really I'm really conscious of of that role actually and I I don't I don't fully know how to manage it. Mm. And I I know now that I am like, yeah, maybe priestly I'd be uncomfortable with, but I yeah. I know it was that only- there's a leadership, you know, that, 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 yeah. that there's a kind of that you're being called on to offer leadership. And the complicated thing f- for me is that I don't seek that leadership. Like mm. I I love to figure stuff out for myself and I resent yeah. anyone telling me otherwise. <laughs> Um, but I, it's, it's unavoidable to notice how many people are, are sort of seeking a flock and are seeking a wider community to be in, but also they're seeking the figureheads that they can, that can help them to unravel the world a bit and make sense of it for them. Mm. And I think we have to be incredibly careful with that because, I mean, you mentioned church abuses and I, you know, like I hate the way that we only talk about religion in terms of abuses now, like that's such, in the secular world, we so often forget all the incredible things that, that yeah. organised religion's done and we yeah. obsess over the the negative parts. Um, but I, you know, we in the secular world are at a very similar risk, exactly the same, that as soon as 
too much faith and not enough questioning is invested in in individuals, then there is always a percentage who will who will misuse that. And I mm. and and more than that, actually, the, the the sort of very situation of people telling you that you're that you have the answers can can really be harmful to to, to the leaders themselves and to the way they see oh, yeah. their role in the world. So I'm at the moment, I'm one of the things I'm trying to figure. I I do always think I've got to solve the world's problems. That's definitely one of my flaws. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how we how we who are in that position can work together as a peer group to understand this role better and to to deport ourselves well within it mm. and to understand the boundaries of that and to make those really clear. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, not only because we can come to harm from it and I seeing a massive rate of burnout amongst writers that, that are kind of in the area that I work in. Mm. Um, but also because I think we could accidentally do, do harm without meaning yeah. to being very well intentioned, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a big question for me at the moment about what I can do to, to contribute to that. We need a kind of seminary for, <laughs> for slightly kind of, you know, spiritual toned writers who, who kind of find themselves into, in leadership positions that they didn't intend to get into, I think. Yeah, honestly, I think we're so, you know, centuries of, kind of religious leaders and then more latterly kind of counsellors and psychotherapists knew mm-hmm. that you need structure and you need oversight, and you need supervision and you need yeah. all those kind of things. And yeah. and because of this strange diversification of our information environment, people aren't going mm. straight to those places that have established paths yeah. for leaders and know the pressures yeah. on them. They're going yeah. other places. So maybe it is time. You're going to launch the Catherine May School for <laughs> Accidental Spiritual Leaders. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a great name. Thank you for that. I please don't sue me <laughs> if I use it. And I, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I do. I, I, I'm giving it a lot of thought. Like, a, not opening, not opening the institute. But how can I? <laughs> just let's just be super clear. Not opening the institute. But I, I do. Think I'm so that, sorry if you um, now get a bunch of applications. <laughs> hey, I mean, the funders can can come and have conversations with me. Then we'll see what we could do. Um, but you can, you see, there's the working class girl in me. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> opportunity knocks and all that. Um, but yeah, no, like I, I've worked a lot on like peer support networks in my in my time, and I am I am trying to figure this out because it's mm. it's definitely necessary, and we just we we don't have a roadmap here. It's yeah. time. <laughs> I wonder. This feels like a separate subject, but I don't think it is. You've you're autistic, and you yep. that language wasn't you know that you didn't find that language until quite late in life. No. How no. how do you think that plays in for you as you're trying to navigate this this role and this this vocation that you have? Mm. I mean, I think part of being autistic means that I like you know you, when we started our conversation, you said I don't do small talk. I am very averse to small talk, and I it helps me to cut to the center of things. Like I, I'm not interested in the periphery. I'm always aiming my dart right at the center. So that's, that's the kind of positive side of it. I think, I think the challenge of being autistic and finding myself in this role is that I have a course lived with a history of social rejection. Like all, I mean, I'm going to say all autistic people. I've not yet met one that, that hasn't. And it's, you know, it's very, confounding to navigate a social world where you are suddenly 
praised for everything and adored by by complete strangers. Like I, that's had a, in a very weird way, that's had a very tough impact on my mental health over the last couple of years. Like, what does it mean to have this amazing, amazing, wonderful support and people wanting my leadership and wanting me to help them after years of feeling like a kind of pariah? Um, and I, yeah, so I've, I'm having to go very gently with this because it's very, very hard to accept that change in your treatment. <laughs> and of course, it's made me even more conscious of like the treatment that people like me receive all the way through our, our growing up. You know, we mm. are, we are so often ostracized and I, I, that's why I have to keep talking about autism and what it feels like from the inside even though I often don't really want to anymore mm. is because I hope that at some point people who are not autistic and not neurodivergent will learn to look at the people that they consider to be weird in their lives and instead of gossiping about them and making rude comments and ostracizing them will start to say they just seem a bit different to me and I'm going to leave them be Mm. it's all it's not much it's just a little yeah. thing feels like we're as a society in a sort of rapid education curve Massive. hopefully mm. around neurodiversity various <laughs> kinds <laughs> Maybe. yeah yeah um, we are. and I've, I, I've had uh various autistic guests on recently and, and you and one other person sent a kind of a thing in advance it was like this is the language that works for me it's just <laughs> so helpful I kind of want not to you know there's no way of doing that on mass but what, what are the kind of key things that you wish people who aren't autistic understood? What are the kind of mm. key things that you're constantly myth busting about or you're constantly being like, oh, if, it, if they could just tweak that, that would help. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for saying autistic and not just digging yourself into a hole about it and going on the sort of spectrum of something, you know, because like, people feel really awkward about it. And mm. I think the, the most important thing to say up front is that I'm not ashamed of being autistic in any way and I don't see it as as like a, a an embarrassment or a terrible thing I see it as a genuine difference and I and I I'm often asking to be allowed for it to be a difference rather than a, a deficit um the the huge experience for the vast majority of autistic people the defining experience is a very different social and sensory environment so we read social relationships really differently that doesn't mean we're unfeeling it does mean that we don't always relate to the way neurotypical people behave in exactly the same way that neurotypical people don't relate to the way we react and behave. Like it's equal and different. And, you know, I've had to fight really hard to understand that my responses to the world are just as valid as other people, that I'm allowed to be more upset. I'm allowed to be upset when somebody squashes a fly, you know, that is my authentic emotional <laughs> response. And, I can't suppress it, you know. So there's that. We're, we're existing in a different social environment with different social needs. The The thing that governs most of my interactions with people is my sensory response to things, which is turned up to such an acute level that everything feels like a bombardment. So sound is very hard for me to deal with like loud music, lots of people talking at once, a loud echoing room with a crowd in it, physically painful, can't concentrate. And I will 
react in exactly the same way that a neurotypical person would react if they are in severe pain. You know, like <laughs> that same uh, not in control of anything, you know, uh, just can only focus on how uncomfortable that is. Um, for me, it's the same with heat, with like textures. I can't wear wool. Um, I can't have a, I can't have a, like a mildly scratchy, la- I can't have any labels in any of my clothes because that is literally the only thing I'll be able to focus on all day. Mm. Um, bright light. I mean, I could, I could go on, but that any kind of mild sensory input for me feels absolutely vast. And that will make it very, very difficult for me to think straight, for me to behave politely, honestly, because, you know, I will react in the same way as if you're kicking me while you're talking to me, <laughs> like if you're trying to play loud music and I'll be like, turn it off, you know. Um, it's, it's, I think the, the challenge is explaining to people that they actually know what it feels like to be me a lot of the time. It's just a different stimulus. Mm. And yes, I'm way further back, but it's safe to just believe people when they straightforwardly tell you they're uncomfortable. That's all we need to learn to do. Mm. And I think the final thing I'd say is that we've been kind of obsessed with sorting autistic people into two categories, the genius ones and the mentally disabled ones. And we need to step away from that very simplistic modelling. Yes, my brain does work differently to yours probably. And I have this ability to go very deep into things and to completely obsess over them until I know everything and then I can spew back everything out as well. Like it's all stored in there. Um, I, I recognise that as different to the way that neurotypicals process information. Fine. Both really important to society. We need both. But we can't only value my way of thinking. And we've got to stop looking for the people who we think are worthless. And that's one of the things that troubles me the most about the way our conversations are progressing about autism. We're getting less pushback about people like me being allowed to say we're autistic without people saying you're not autistic, blah, blah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting more acceptance that my end of the spectrum is okay by the rest of society. But at the same time, that's being used as a kind of sorting device to say you're the valid ones. And I'm so troubled by that. I think we're becoming more eugenic in our attitude as a society. And I think the important thing to remember that that distinction, the distinction that would once have given me the label of Asperger's rather than autism, emanated from Nazi eugenics very specifically. And it was designed to sort out the people who lived and the people who died. And it's time for us all to challenge our thinking about all disabled people and whether we get to judge whether they are valid or not. And tragically, for someone like me, organised religion does much better at explaining why we value everybody than the secular world has managed so far. And that's something we've got to work on. Mm. Catherine May, thank (laughs) you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. It's been amazing to talk to you. And uh, I could carry this conversation on forever. It's been really fun. What... What a sweetheart, honestly. (laughs) Doesn't seem to be another word for it. 
Um, Catherine is so thoughtful and so kind. And, um, you know, having read her books, that didn't come as a surprise, but it doesn't always follow. Um, Her sacred value is solitude. And that, you know, makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels. I think her work and another book called Quiet that has come out in the last maybe five years, possibly earlier time, begins to act strangely, um, have been really key for people uh, who would call themselves introverted or um, people who are um, neurodivergent. Seeing their stories and their temperament um, in public as a legitimate way of being in the world, as being um, a difference, not a deficit, as Catherine said, um, that these these ways that were different, these these really um, sometimes um, pretty stark differences in temperament and communication style and emotional needs, I think we are coming to this awareness of being able to hold those things as as um, as beautiful, as fascinating, as interesting, as making the world um, more vibrant rather than necessarily being a threat or needing there to be a dominant mode uh, into which everyone else falls. The events buffer thing. I was talking to a friend recently who um, is on a journey like I think many more people in recent years are are asking herself if she might be neurodivergent and, and, and some of the ways that she and, and, and other people who do know that they're autistic talk about meltdowns, these kind of um, uh, moments of complete sensory overwhelm, um, of feeling out of control, of feeling like uh, the, whole, the whole bodily um, system has just, you know, gone into complete meltdown uh, and how scary that can be. And I think that that shorthand of like, beep, <laughs> I'm done. Nothing more can come in here now. I'm really glad that uh, Catherine has found that way of talking about what she needs and finding um, finding ways to to look after herself. It is interesting. We did we didn't set out to have a series with two autistic people talking about their autism. We um, invited them for a range of a range of other reasons but I do feel like I've had a crash course in autism this series and a crash course in the kind of attentive listening and um increased awareness of what what does it mean to 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 engage with people um I'm not autistic so what does it mean for me to engage with people who have autism and and to engage across those differences this picture of Catherine as a child, what's really coming to mind is Matilda. And, um, you know, Matilda's family were horrible and Catherine's family clearly weren't and were very loving. But this kind of um, child who wanted to write, you know, desperate to write, who who didn't necessarily find lots of um, uh, encouragement or space or, or, or pathways laid out for her um, in her home life, but did really find it in school. And again and again in these interviews, uh, good teachers come up. I just want to, if you're a good, te- if you're a teacher, I just want to, because I'm going to assume you're a good one. Uh, I think you probably are. Um, I just want to honor you and f- affirm you and say thank you for the work that you do. Generally un- underpaid, generally underappreciated with, I'm sure lots of parents like me having too many opinions about what you're doing and too much work. But that really, I think sacred that's that sacred uh, trust 
of, of walking with, with other people's children and naming the gifts that you see in them and calling them out of them and setting people like Catherine on a path that they might not have found for themselves is just the most extraordinary um, and beautiful thing. I love the idea of her reading the dictionary. Gosh, just the, this picture of her like, like sucking on words like they're sweets, you know, just the treasure in the etymology and the sounds and the way across the dictionary, you can see the way the things they link together. Um, just beautiful. But again, this embarrassment of creativity, you know, the, the, I, th- I think a lot of people who feel a creative vocation feel this, like, is it all right? Is it legitimate? stupid is it um yeah is it showing off is it asking for people's attention um I have felt it as I'm learning to write more publicly this sense of it's almost I've never said this word out loud I realize I've written it gauche gauche (laughs) I don't have to say that word gauche g-a-u-c-h-e that word that's embarrassing, um, to, you know, to be like a child with a, a, a plasticine pot, you know, here's this thing I made, don't you think it's lovely? Um, the courage it takes to be a creative person, to make something and put it into the world and know that people will judge and critique it. I wish we could find ways to lower the embarrassment around that. Um, I think some people suffer more embarrassment than others. She said this great line about vulnerability in public. She's really careful with the facts, but she is open with the emotional truth. And I love that. I love the idea, you know, and it goes back to this old writing adage, what is most particular is most universal. That actually when we are given, in, when it's boundaried and healthy, when we are given an insight into someone else's internal world, into the pain and hope and complex not of being a person in the world, of trying to be a human, it can feel so, it can feel so humanizing. It can feel so, we can feel so seen somehow in seeing someone else. We can feel so connected. Um, we're such social creatures. We are so interconnected and interdependent and knowing that our experience of trying to be a human in the world, um, we're not the only ones that feel the things we feel, that struggle with the things we struggle. That I think is the sort of, beautiful, noble, high calling of art and creativity is it helps us see and hear each other at a deep level in a different way. Yeah, this, that, you know, the Catherine May School for Accidental Spiritual Leaders, we were joking about it, but I do think seriously about, I think it's one of the reasons I ask people about their vocation. You know, I want, I want, people who are columnists or people who are business leaders or people who politicians to think about it as vocation. Because when you have a religious vocation, there is a pathway. There is someone who will be like, are you sure? How is your character? How are you going to get supported? Who is going to be praying for you? The like weight of the thing is taken seriously. But there's all kinds of other different sort of secular vocations. There's no structure around. There's no support. There's no one saying, do you know what you're taking on? What do you need to, to support yourself? You know, how do you not let it turn you into a monster? Um, it's not to say that the religious pathways are foolproof, as we see far too regularly. Um, but yes, that, it's just such a tender human thing. It's so raw, isn't it? People, 
and I feel it about Catherine and other people, when someone writes and they seem or speaks and seems wise and kind and humane and trustworthy, my heart's just like, oh, yes, like teach me, teach me. I want there to be a grown up. I want, I don't want to have to be the grown up. I want someone else to be the grown up. And you know, in my my tradition and my understanding, a lot of that is displaced because it's supposed to be oriented towards God, and we need to be sort of skeptical of our desire to treat other people too with too much respect or too much dignity or too much affirmation. Um, but we also can't help it. We want leaders. We want authority figures. And also there's this thing about elders, right? The people who pass wisdom down the generations who who do say, you know, I've walked this path. This is how you walk this path. That's all good. And I want it. But for those people like Catherine thrust into that position, that's a really, that's soul work, doing it well. And I'm hopeful about how she's thinking about it and how seriously she's taking it. Finally, on a sad note, autistic people have a long history of social rejection. I've never met one who didn't. Chris Packham on this series also, who I think you will have already heard by this time. Hideous, hideous social rejection, teenage trauma. I really hope that we're learning better. Difference is not deficit. Difference doesn't have to be threat. It can be an opportunity to learn and grow. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred with Catherine May. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Dan Turner and Fiona Hanscom. I have several times accidentally said Fiona Howarth. Apologise to Fiona Hanscom that her name has got filed wrongly in my head. And also to, I think, possibly a real person called Fiona Howarth, who might even listen to this podcast, whose name I got mundled, 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 mundled up. <laughs> Muddled up in my filing system. And you must have thought, that's strange. I am not actually on the production team. But these things happen. Um, our music is by Luke Stanley. Vocals by Lizzie Harvey. And The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos. I would love you to check out the wider work of Theos. Um, research topics, really thoughtful commentary on anything you could want, really. Something recently, um, really fascinating long, fascinating long read on orthodoxy, the, the, the orthodox church, everything you would want to know. I felt very informed after reading it. You should go check that out. In the meantime, please do leave us a review or a rating or send an episode to a friend. We are so delighted that the podcast is finding its way into new conversations and new channels. If you're here and uh, you've stumbled upon us, maybe because you like Catherine May, we're so glad you're here. Uh, And you can converse with us on social media or via email. And I'd really like to hear what thoughts this episode left you with. Until next time, I will speak to you then.